0: focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this morning as we turn to the book of Hebrews, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 4 to chapter 2, verse 18, But that would take several, perhaps many weeks. But for this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received the just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Father, as we come into your word now, we continue to worship you. Lord, may we see... Your glory this morning, and as we gaze at at your glory, may we be humbled and encouraged and transformed, Lord, into the image of Christ. We do pray for all those, including my dear wife, Lisa, who are either sick or have terrible colds, Lord. We pray you would heal them and make them well, and that you would encourage them this morning. May you be exalted now as we worship you. Through the hearing and preaching of your word. For Christ's sake, amen. Some years ago, I had three friends that decided to go to the beach. I believe it was either Long Beach or Newport Beach. They were pretty good swimmers. And they decided that they would take a boogie board. There was one boogie board between three of them. And they decided to go out past the breakers. And so they they went out past the breakers. And they were treading water. And then they would shear the boogie board back and forth. And they really weren't paying that much attention to what was going on. They were just talking, having fun, swimming around, sharing every now and then the boogie board, you know, to have a break from treading water. Well, before they knew it, somehow they had drifted away, got caught in some kind of riptide that was not just going down the beach, but out. And they ended up being way, 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 way out in the middle, not in the middle of the ocean, but almost in the middle of this shipping lane. Well, pretty soon they began, this is a true story, they they got tired, and the amount of time that they were sharing the boogie board you know, increased, and it was quickly being passed back and forth. And they thought, they, they are believers, they thought that they were going to drown. When they began to wave their hands, and after about 10 or 15 minutes, a lifeguard came on a big, long surfboard and with a couple of life vests To save their life. They they really weren't paying attention. And they just drifted. And they almost drifted into destruction. It seemed like they were just casually having fun. But because they weren't paying attention, they almost lost their lives. True story. They have never done that again. Ever. (laughs) It's not wrong or bad to go past the breakers in an ocean. I've done that many times. But if you're not paying attention, even if you're in the Atlantic Ocean, even if you're in the Gulf, you're not paying attention, you can get caught in a tide or current and be swept out to sea. Drifting, at times, can be dangerous. And here, we're seeing in our text, really chapter 1, 4 through two eighteen, but especially 2, 1 through 4, is that if we're not careful, drifting can be dangerous. You can look at chapter 2, verse 1, so that we do not drift away from it. Drift away from the gospel. Drift away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These believers that were, at least professing believers, that were in this congregation that the book of Hebrews is written to, were in danger of, not purposefully, but in a sense, accidentally, Drifting away, moving away from Christ. It could be true of us that, and I'm sure that you know of some individuals, that they did not purpose to move away from Jesus. It wasn't in their mind necessarily, I'm going to step away from Christ. But over a period of time, they have drifted further and further away from Jesus Christ it could be true of you that in your heart maybe not the location of your body you're here this morning but maybe in your heart and your mind not necessarily that you planned it out but through a series of temptations and steps and choices and neglect you've you've moved further away from Christ even in our passage it talks about neglect in chapter two verse three how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. There can be times in a professing believer's life where it's not that they reject Christ, but it's almost they forget about Christ. And these, at least professing believers, have moved away from Jesus, where he's just, not that as important anymore. And so the book of Hebrews is written Primarily, mainly for this reason, to help these professing believers and also true believers to endure with Christ. So this morning, I want to sum up this whole unit, chapter 1, 4 to chapter 2, verse 18, with this sentence. Jesus Christ is superior to your extra-biblical tradition. Therefore, focus on him so you don't drift into hell. This passage, I think, to summarize it, is basically saying Jesus Christ is superior to your extra-biblical tradition. To my extra-biblical tradition. Therefore, focus on Jesus so you don't drift into hell. Some people are in hell by neglect. Because they drifted. In other words, many people are not going to hell because they raised their hand and said, Yes, I want to go to hell forever. Forever and forever. I want to be in hell. In fact, probably most people don't think that way. But rather through indifference, through neglect. And, and many, maybe at one time, raised their hand. I pray that I, to, to receive Christ. Yes. But really, in their heart, it it really wasn't serious. It really wasn't sincere. And slowly, they drift away from that profession they made. It really wasn't serious in their heart. There was peer pressure. Then the peer pressure changes from being a Christ peer pressure to being a worldly peer pressure. And Christ is forgotten about. And we have to be careful because... Scripture says those that endure to the end will be saved. It's not that we reject that we reject once saved always saved. If you're saved, saved means you're saved. He that began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. Salvation is forever. But if you are saved, that salvation is so powerful it will enable you to endure. One of the ways that we endure is that we focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this focus, if you've looked through binoculars or a camera or even a sight, you have to, you have to focus it. You have to turn it. As you look around, you have to refocus binoculars, even a cell phone. When you're taking a picture, you know, you put your two fingers on it and you move it around and you go over here, you might refocus it, trying to get it really sharp this passage that we look at is calling us to focus on Jesus Christ being superior to extra-biblical tradition, being superior to to anything and, and anyone. But there's basically some focus adjustments that need to be made on our lives and even with this text. So the first focus adjustment that I want us to consider is this. Focus primarily this morning on the intention of this text. The intention of this text. It's one of the ways that this morning we need to focus is what primarily is this text saying to you and to I? What what primary is the Spirit saying? And we've already stated it, but we can state it even this way. Adore Christ above religious tradition so that you don't wander into apathy or or what impresses you most. For these professing believers, there was a temptation to be impressed more with angels than with Jesus Christ. There was a tradition that they had that they were saved, or at least made a profession of faith, out of a Judaism that had left God behind. It was called a second temple Judaism. The temple had been rebuilt. And this particular brand of Judaism had added, if not worship, a, an unhealthy respect or veneration for angels. And they had Michael and Gabriel, and they had many other Angels that they would pay more attention to and seek safety and deliverance from than they would from the Messiah. So first, as we consider what this text, what it's really saying to us, I want us to understand the, the text intention. And so just look at the text with me. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. And if you're taking notes, you can see this first section is basically about the deity of Christ. That Jesus is superior to the angels. He's the Son of God. That The Son of God is greater than angels. And then the second section... Is two chapter two verses one through four, which is a bridge. It's a type of a of a bridge that's connecting chapter one four through fourteen and chapter two five through eighteen. And this second section here is basically the first exhortation. Don't drift away. Pay. Much closer attention. Don't neglect such a great salvation. We'll look at that some this morning and then much more in depth next week. But you can see the third section, chapter 2, 5 through 18, is about primarily the humanity of Christ. You can see verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That is what, what the Spirit of God is saying to these beloved people that are being written to, is you should look at Jesus Christ and trust him more because he is greater than angels. Because he is divine He is fully God, Jesus Christ is fully God, trust him above angels, but also he's fully man now. The Son of God has become a true human, which no angel has ever done. So why are you trusting angels? Instead, trust Jesus Christ. Focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus Christ is superior to angels because of his mission, because of his work, because he became flesh and blood. Do we really understand that? The Son of God became a human. We see that, chapter 2, verse 14. At the same time, he never gave up his deity, he's also fully God. And that's chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Now, we can press a little bit more into this by taking the text's intention into our heart. We know what the intention is. That is that these, again, these precious believers, and then some were professing believers. Some weren't really believing in Jesus. Some were believing in Jesus. Some had made an outward confession, but they were having a hard time with their faith because of persecution. But let's go a little bit more further into this. I I think you could state it this way, and I, I can ask it more as a question. Are you committed to Christ? Are you just curious about Christ? These, This congregation, there were at least some professing believers. That is, they had professed Christ. But it was more that they were curious about Jesus than being committed to Jesus. I have many friends that I know, here in Washington, neighbors and other men and women, that are curious about Jesus, but are not committed to Christ. At the 4th of July parade several years ago, I met a woman that I think had crystals, one of the stalls, she had crystals, and she was a, a witch like, and, and Wicca, and she was very curious about Christ, but not committed to Christ. People can be, even in the church, can be really curious about Jesus but not committed to Christ. People can be entertained about the Son of God but not embrace the Son of God. And so here, this passage, the Spirit of God is saying, don't just be entertained by Jesus and don't just be curious about Him because what's going to happen, you're going to end up drifting away and then you're going to neglect the great salvation and you're going to be damned forever because you were just entertained you were just curious but you didn't fully come all the way and embrace Jesus Christ there's a book I think it's by Matthew Mead almost Christian almost Christian that discovered I think which is one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews go all endure to the end a true Christian endures to the end A, a true Christian that's professing Christ also will fully embrace Jesus Now, you might say, why though you've mentioned several times, Jesus is superior to extra-biblical tradition. And we don't find that phrase or those words in the text. Well, I have mentioned that it does talk a lot about angels. You can see in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, both sections talk about angels. You can see chapter 2 verse 5 is still talking about angels. And then chapter 3 begins to talk about Moses and Joshua and the Sabbath. So this first section, really chapter 1, verse 4 to two eighteen, talks about the Son of God and angels, and that the Son of God is greater than the angels. Why does he bring it up first? It, it comes right away in chapter 1. Because there were these believers, apparently... When you read the book of Hebrews, uh, it seems to be certain they were saved out of this Judaism that had forgotten or neglected or denied the true God of the Old Testament. And they had crafted a type of their own religion, but part of this religion was almost Gnostic in some ways, in a sense where Gnosticism could have a type of angelic, semi-divine beings between man and God. Well, Second Temple—that is the Jewish religion of the day and age of the apostles—believed something very in a very similar fashion, and so they would ascribe more attention to angels than to the, the Messiah. I mean, today I've had friends, I've had relatives pray, "Tom, I'm going to go off into war. Please pray that Michael, the God, the, the angel of war, would protect me." I've heard former generals and politicians pray to Michael, the archangel. And that type of theology had, or at least was, tempting and infesting some of these men and women that were part of this congregation and that had at least verbally confessed Christ. Now remember... And we saw this earlier in chapter 10. I won't go over there and read it, but just so you know, it's it's in chapter 10. I believe that there were believers from the congregation that had been imprisoned. Other believers were going and visiting them. And the ones that that, that were visiting the other believers in prison, some of them were being persecuted and having their belongings stolen. Maybe even themselves would be put in prison for visiting believing prisoners. And so there very well could have been this voice. Maybe in their own sinful flesh. Maybe from friends and relatives. You professed Christ and you became a Christian. And you left our Judaism. And now what's happened to you? Is life better off for you now? Do you Have you forgotten about Gabriel and Michael and there's a whole list of angels? You, you, you don't call on their names anymore. And what happened to you? Now you're suffering. You've given up your faith and your family, Judaism, and unbiblical Judaism, for this Jesus. And now you're in prison and you've lost your home. Maybe you should think about coming back. Come back home. To this. Come back home to your own culture. To your own religion. And so they. Were being tempted to hang on to Christ. But yet at the same time. You know the current sometimes is strong. Have you ever tried to go against a riptide? Have you ever tried to swim upstream a strong river? It's <laughs> I've been in a snake river trying to swim the other way. (laughs) Almost any river, it's very difficult. So these beloved people were, at least some of them, were beginning and were drifting away from that original confession in Christ. And my temptation is to say, how could they do that? They were losing all that they had. They were losing their home. And friends and family were being imprisoned. Where is your faith going to be when your friends and family are put in prison and you lose your home? So the Spirit of God, God himself, is seeking to minister to them, to help them to understand that seeking refuge and hope of salvation and atonement from angels, that's unbiblical false theology. Go to Jesus. Jesus is God, and he's fully human. He understands you better than Michael and Gabriel and any angel ever would. What you need is Jesus. Therefore, again, focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that's the first focus uh, adjustment that we make. We understand what the text here is broadly about, and then we can understand this a a little bit more, and then we're going to look even more in depth in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But right away, we need to understand that this extra-biblical tradition for them was almost this angel worship. But the question is, what is it for you and I? That is, that they were being tempted to drift away from Christ because angels were more significant than Jesus. That was the, the theology that was being communicated to them. That was the message. That was the, the narrative that they were hearing. And so they would be entertained even by that and then begin to be cold away from Christ. What holds more significance to you? It could be hobbies, it could be politics, it could be work, it could be family, it could be health, but nothing and no one is more significant than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of those different things can have their, they do, they have their proper place and time. And responsible, responsibilities that we have to all those different relationships and priorities in our life. But the priority is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we focus on him. So so then now we go to the second focus. You, you focus on, on the text. It's what this text, large picture, is saying. I see the outline. And it's talking uh, specifically. I need to be sure that Christ is the most significant thing. Life and I don't just, I'm not satisfied just by being entertained by him. I want to embrace him fully. I've been a Christian for, I don't know how long now, 40 years. I want to be sure that I'm embracing Jesus Christ more today than I was yesterday. I don't want to just be entertained by him. I want to, I want to know him better today than I did last week. Now then, the second focus that we need to make is this. And we see this in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. We focus on the truth that Jesus Christ and his nature is more awesome than any elite spiritual being. Is the way I think that these beloved people in this congregation would have understood what the Spirit is saying to them. And their minds how they have been taught since they were kids, is the cherubim, the seraphim, Michael, Gabriel. They're your protectors. Trust your guardian angel, It's what they would have heard. Something similar to that. Rely on them. Depend upon them. You need to get to know them. And rather the Spirit of God is saying that Jesus Christ is infinitely more awesome than all the angels combined. Trust him. Jesus Christ is superior to my and your religious extra-biblical tradition. And and you'll note, the reason why I bring it up, extra-biblical tradition, is because if you look at chapter 1, verses 5, all the way to the end of the chapter, he's quoting from where? Where? The Old Testament. He's quoting from biblical authority and not from tradition. And so we want to be sure that we're following the Jesus of the Bible, the religion of the Bible. And so we make Jesus our primary focus. Jesus Christ is greater than Your guardian angel. You've heard that, right? So many times. Again, I've heard people say, you know, my my guardian angel. Well, maybe later we can look at that. You don't have a guardian angel. I'm very sorry to tell you that. You probably have guardian angels, but even that may not be the best way to describe it. But better than that, who do you have with you? Jesus. (laughs) The Messiah. He's with you. And so that is what the Spirit of God is communicating to these dear beloved people. Is that there there are angels, they're real, they're powerful, they're ministering spirits. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 14. But even better is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and He's with you always. He will never leave you or forsake you, as He says in chapter 13, I think it's verse 5. And therefore, don't fear not having lots of money in the stuff of life, because you have Jesus. In fact, when you look at this passage, this is a great passage to use with cults. If you have a cult that comes to your front door and they say, But Jesus is called the Son of God, He's not God. Well, it says in Hebrews 1 8, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever. So God the Father says to the Son, You're God. This is a great section to use with cults because so clearly and graphically it paints a beautiful picture that Jesus Christ is awesome because he is God, and he's God of the angels. So just somewhat briefly, we're going to look at verses 4 through 14. And underneath this second focus, and that is the truth that Jesus Christ is more awesome than the most elite spiritual beings, right? Angels, even even the cherubim and the seraphim. If you took all the angels, if you took even all the demons and their and their might and power, if you put them all together, they wouldn't it wouldn't even be a drop in a bucket compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing this to encourage these professing believers and believers to this congregation You're being tempted to trust something that you think, or at least that people are trying to get you to think, that's more glorious and more worthy than Jesus. That's not true. Trust Jesus. Focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we're going to break this down just into three, three points here. You're focusing on this. You've done that, right, with your binoculars, maybe even your telescope, and you look at it and... You can see it, and maybe you can give it, you know, you can even get it closer. It can be even more clear. And so that's what we're going to do now, underneath the second focus. First, Jesus Christ, he's greater than angels, because he has a greater name, or a better name, than angels. And you can see this in verses 4 and 5. Having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they, for To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I'll be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. What is this name? Now some, similar to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, would say, uh, 5 through 12, would say that the name is Lord. But here, if you look in context, this name, which is better than the angels, is what? Verse 5 should make it clear. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? So there is a name that God the Father gives to the second person of the Trinity, and that is, You are my son. That is, there's never been, in the Bible, sometimes the angels can be described as sons of God, but there is no one individual called... The Son of God, and I'm your Father, and you are my Son. This is reserved for the Messiah. It's reserved for the Son of God. It's reserved for Jesus Christ. And look at verse 4 and these amazing words. Having become as much better than the angels. So often, the book of Hebrews is described as it's about the superiority of Christ. And it's because of these words. As much better Jesus Christ is is better than the old covenant. He's better than the old Levitical system. He's better than Moses and better than Joshua and better than the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of all those things. Now here in verse 4, you'll note, having become as much better is modifying, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When did he do that? Well, after he had died on the cross for purification of sins, and rose again. He succeeded in his mission of dying for the sins of all those who would trust him, and all that sin that you committed and I committed, all those that trust Jesus, all their sin, past, present, and future, could be wiped clean, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. That was his 100% successful mission. God... Validates that by having him sit down at his right hand, successful mission, the right hand side was the, the place of prominence and authority. Then verse 4 says, having become as much better than the angels. That is, which angel did God ever go to and say, You completed your mission, angel, you sit right on my right hand side. He didn't say that to Michael or Gabriel, the friend or seraphim. But he says that to the son. So place your mind and place yourself in the context of these believers that had grown up in a type of Judaism that really paid way too much attention to angels and would lie on them for safety and for protection, maybe even somewhat for, for atonement. And now they're hearing, and God is seeking to have them to understand there was no angel that God said, sit at my right hand, because you have proved that you're my son. No angel was ever called son, and that I will be a father to him. Now, when it says in verse 4, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, it's not that he was never the son of God before, but rather it's that his resurrection proved that he was Lord and God, proved that God the Father received his Just and full and perfect atonement for sin. And then when Christ rose again from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death and satisfying that full wrath of God, it verified, according to the Psalm 2-7 that he's quoting, You are my son today, I have begotten you. That resurrection proved and validates that Jesus is who he said, he is the great I am. And so no angel is called son or the son of God. And I'm the father. And so he has a more excellent name. So for these beloved people, they're being uh, rebuked and convicted and being taught. There's one who is much greater, much better than Michael and Gabriel. That, that person that you were relying on to give you happiness and satisfaction and deliverance. There's somebody better. And that's the Son of God. Now, he goes further. And that, not just that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is given a better name, Son. And he proved it by his death and resurrection and ascension and coronation, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. No angel is there at God's right hand on the throne. Additionally, secondly, Jesus is worshipped by the angels. The angels worship Jesus. So why are you seeking to almost worship angels when actually the angels worship someone greater than them? Shouldn't you worship the one that they worship? And that is the Son of God, that is Jesus. Verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now here when it says, in verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, that phrase, when he again, it can be understood to be referring either to the incarnation or the return of Christ. The grammar in this verse, depending how you take that one term again, can be again in terms of here's another proof, or it can be again in a sense he's coming a second time. It's not abundantly or crystal clear whether it's referring to his First coming into the world and in his incarnation are his second coming into the world with the return of Christ. Most commentators, most, not all, take it to refer to the return of Christ. But we know, right? When the Messiah first came into the world and Luke chapter two, all the angels appeared and they, they worshiped him and sang and, and gave glory to God. We also see in the book of Revelation. Not at his immediate return, but we see in Revelation 5, speaking in the context of Christ's return. We see uh, verse 12 of chapter 5, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And even verse 13, to him it sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and forever. And you're familiar with Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Have angels ever praised and sang songs about Gabriel and Michael or any other Angels are seraphim or cherubim in this way. Luke chapter 2, verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly house, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. So I hope we can see the argument that the Spirit of God is painting here. In chapter 1, verse 6. Why would... Anyone give more attention to an angel than Jesus when the angels actually are worshipping Jesus? Further, and this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time, First, we said that Jesus Christ has a better name. He's called Son. Second, the angels actually are worshipping the Son. They're worshipping God the Son. They're not worshipping the cherubim and the Seraphim. They're not worshipping themselves. They're not worshipping Gabriel and Michael. They're worshipping Christ. Third, is that basically the Spirit of God uses these remaining verses in chapter 1 to say that Jesus is the God King. Jesus is the God King. He's king, and he's God. He's, in fact, Yahweh. He's the king of the Thai universe, and he's Yahweh. So why would you pay so much attention to angels? Rather, focus on Christ, the Son of God, who himself is God and the king of the universe. Note this in verse 7 and 8. You see in verse 7, and it says, of angels, he says. And then verse 8 says, but of the Son, he says. The he- the, not the Hebrew, the, the Greek here can stand out a little bit more. And it uses this technical phrase, men, M-E-N, and day, de, D-E. And you could even paraphrase it like this. Verse 7 would have the men. Verse 8 would have the day. You could say, and of the angels, he says this. But on the other hand, about the Son, he says this. It's one of the New Testament Greek ways to make a distinction or a contrast and to make it very emphatic. Of the angels, he says this. But of the Son of God, he says this. Well, what is he saying about the angels? Well, note in verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So at least two things. He makes. He made them. God made him. The angels of God worship him, verse 6. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels, winds, and his minister, a flame of fire. The angels are created beings comparable to the elements here in this text. Wind and fire, even the, the word for spirit, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, one of the meanings can be wind. Ruach would be Old Testament Numa New Testament can be the idea of when. But here in this passage, it's well what the Spirit is saying is that and angels are created beings, but the Son of God is forever. And he laid the foundations of the earth. You can see that in verse ten. He makes angels winds, and his ministers, his his servants, his his messengers a flame of fire. Who created angels and designed them and who purposed them to do certain things? Who was that? Again, was it Michael or, or Gabriel? Was it the cherophant and the seraphim that made themselves? No, of course not. And so why are you paying attention to this? Extra-biblical tradition. Don't run to these angels. Run to Jesus Christ. And then he goes in depth and listen to the things he says about the Son of God. And this is, again, this is in contrast to the angels that he has made and he has designed and purposed to do certain things. But about the Son of God, about Jesus Christ, he says... Your throne, O God. So first, God is addressing God the Son as God. Does God ever address the angels as God? No. Of course not. Never. Does God ever address the angels in terms of angel, your throne is eternal? No. Never. Ever. But here, in this passage, he's saying the Son, the Son of God, is God himself. You can see it there in the text. God addresses God the Son as God and even does it with what's called evocative. You see, it says, oh, God, you know, when you're excited, you might go. Sometimes, no, Lisa, she's not here. I can talk about her a little bit. But when she gets excited, maybe a present, maybe even I walk into a room or we're driving. She can be very exuberant. Oh, ah, yes, yes, hallelujah. That's what this O oh, before God is. It's this, this passion that's coming out. So this is a passionate statement by God to God the Son saying, yes, God the Son, your God on the throne forever. Does God the Father ever talk that way about anybody else? Any other spiritual, physical being or object. No, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is God himself. And then he even talks about his, his rule, his kingdom. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Meaning that he, he'll reign forever and ever on the throne of God because he himself is God, and he'll do it with perfect Righteousness. I think this is saying that the righteousness of God is the righteousness of God the Son. And his kingdom's going to overflow with God's righteousness because he himself is God. And he has the same character of God. And that's why verse 9 says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And he's quoting from the Psalms. And then again he says, therefore, God, and for this reason God, your God has anointed you. Does God have a God? God's God is who? God. Who does God worship? It may be a strange way to think about it, but if God worships anybody, it's who? Himself. That's what's happening in verse 9. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Anointed is the language of the Messiah. Therefore, God, that is God the Son... Your God, God the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus Christ is worshiping God the Father when he says what? In the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. That's worship. Didn't God the Son, didn't Jesus Christ worship God the Father? Yes. Yes. And here, even God the Father is talking about, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. This is a look into the triune Godhead. God the Father is God, but God the Son is also God. I mean, it's very clear. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. And it says with this glad, the oil of gladness. Again, it's the idea of... God the Father is saying that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. And his significance and glory is above his companions. Now, who are the companions? Well, that same word is used. I won't go to all the places. It's used throughout Hebrews, referring to the brethren. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. It's used of humans. That's in the context of the whole book. In the context of this passage here, it could refer also to angels. Whatever it is, whether it's humans or angels, it's saying that the Son of God, the Messiah, has been set apart to be this anointed one that is greater than the angels and even greater than humanity. He is the Messiah. Al Mohler wrote this, quote, Angels may surround the throne of God, but the Son sits on the throne. Angels may be sent, but Christ is their anointed one. End of quote. That's a good quote. And so these beloved people, again, some were truly saved, some were professing to be Christian, some were beginning to wander off, and at least in part, some were being tempted to go back, and I really need to get back in touch with my guardian angels, Michael and Gabriel whoever. And so the Spirit of God is saying, why would you ever do that? That's extra-biblical tradition that's not true. Instead, focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is all that you need. And now he goes further and you can see in verse 10 he's saying and and that's the idea of and, and not only this but let, let me even develop this argument more and know what he says. You, Lord. And it's all capitals. It's quoting from the Old Testament. The Psalm 102. And it's all capitals. In the Old Testament when you have capital L-O-R-D. It's for the Hebrew word Yahweh, which was the God there of the burning bush. I am that I am. The self-sufficient, self-existing God. And look at verse 10. It was this God that laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens and the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Remember back to verse 7. Of the angels, he says, God purposed, designed, created the angels. But it is the Son of God who is Lord, who is Yahweh, whom verse 2 and 3 says that the world, the whole universe, was made through him and is sustained by him. He created the very foundation of the earth and the heavens, the, the biggest star that we know of in the universe. I, I think there's one that we found now that's bigger, but it is Betelgeuse. And you could put like 500 of our sons inside of Betelgeuse, right? And, but I think they've even found one bigger than, than Beetlejuice now. Who made, how did that happen? Was it the universe? The universe is in charge. No, the universe is not in charge. Jesus Christ created the universe. Have, have you ever heard that and talked to people? I've heard people, many people, you know, we need to get in tune with the universe. The universe is guiding me. The, the universe has a plan. The universe is not a sentient being. God created it. And it's finite. You know, Carl Sagan is wrong. The universe isn't going to go on. The universe is not infinite. Only God is infinite. No one or nothing else is. And even here, when it's talking, it's talking about, not not angels necessarily, but the creation of the universe. They will perish, but you will remain. God has a plan for the universe, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be a new universe, and the old universe is going to be burned up by fire. But here in verse 12, when he talks about created things, the universe, he's talking to them about like a child's childhood blanket. You know how your children have a blanket and they love that blanket? They never want to let go of it. And as years go by, it gets a little bit tattered. And then more tattered and more tattered. (laughs) Preserve the blanket! But... It doesn't get preserved. Pretty soon, it's just what—it's just just a piece of almost like garbage. Just all tattered. It's just like a rag. You can't. Maybe you could put that in the garage and use it to wipe up the oil with, like a garment that can't be used anymore. It's, it's all dirty and gross. Like when I was growing up, I had this shirt. It was red, white, and blue horizontal stripes. I never wanted to take it off. I wore it for weeks. My mother, I think, got mad at me, but eventually she got to the point where it was, okay, wear it all the time. And then pretty soon, oh man, it was bad. It stunk, it had holes, it was ripped, and then it just went into the garbage. Because it's finite. And so the Spirit of God is saying, the whole universe, the, the, the universe is not God. It has a set time. And it's going to one day end. And it's going to be tossed away like a used-up, old, tattered blanket. But God, and the Son of God, is self-existent. And He never changes. And His years will not come to an end. He is everlasting and eternal. And then verse 13, He says, He adds this in closing. To an angel, has he ever said, sit at my right hand? and I'm going to conquer all your enemies until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Has he given that kind of promise to any angel? No. Only to the Messiah. Only to the Son of God. And he says in verse 14, angels are spirits that have been designed to serve, and especially to serve believers. They exist Primarily, at least in your relationship to them, to serve you. Why are you worshiping them? Why are you giving them more respect and attention to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's gonna reign forever and forever, and it sits at the right hand of God on high, and God actually sends the angels to minister and serve and to help you, but not for you to pay them too much respect but rather so you can even fulfill your service for God. Instead, give your attention to Christ. And note, he says in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits, rendering service? All of them, every single one of them, they were created, they're like an element that's been created, powerful, powerful, certainly, but designed by God for a specific function. That function is not to reign over the universe. That's what Christ does. That's what the Son of God does. Jesus Christ is more awesome than angels because Jesus Christ has always, the Son of God has always existed. So worship Him. This is the glorious Jesus Christ. Where do you look for salvation? Well, in Jesus Christ. Where do you look for atonement? An angel? Jesus Christ. Where are we called to look for help from when we're in trouble? The scriptures say, if angels are for you, who can be against you? No. If God is for you, if the Lord is for you, if Jesus Christ, the God King, the warrior God, the lion of Judah, the Lion of God. If he's for you, then who can be against you? Only Christ can save you. Only Christ is your deliverer. Only Christ truly is your helper. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man may come unto the Father except through him. Looking anywhere else, seeking ultimately seeking satisfaction or significance. And anything or anyone else will lead Where? Ultimately, destruction. It leads to unhappiness. Every person, every system, every institution will fail you. Every single one. Except for one Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't drift away from Him. Focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So start tomorrow. Sometimes you hear that people like to train in the morning. That's great. So start tomorrow, start today, train your mind. I'm going to focus more on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, than all the bad things in my life. Rather than thinking about all the bad things in my life, I'm going to think about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm going to think about him. Focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't drift away from him. Don't neglect the great salvation that you have in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this reminder. Lord, may we, by by grace, glue ourselves into standing in Christ. We stand in Christ. We stand in this grace, by grace, for your glory. But Lord, may we stand in Christ, always confessing you as our Lord and Savior. We give you the glory, Jesus, and we praise your name. Amen.